We turn our attention to Psalm 51. This can be found on page 474 of the Blue Pew Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. If you'd like to turn there. Before we go to this passage of Scripture, there's two things that I want to announce. One is, as we've been journeying through the life of David, next week um, my plan is to address a very difficult passage. It's the passage of David's son uh, raping David's daughter. And um, I just, my plan is to preach on that passage. Um, If I can't do it well, I'm not going to do it. Um, But I do know that that is the issue of rape is a very personal issue for uh, several of you here. And so I wanted you to be aware of that to prepare your heart. And then also, um, I do believe that the message will be appropriate, but I know some of you have particular concerns for those conversations with your children. And so I just raise your awareness for that. Also, as a tremendous resource, one of my favorite resources on Psalm 51 is this devotional book called Whiter Than Snow, which is on our book table. Uh, it's about, I think it's $9 on our book table. This, this is a daily devotion. There's 52, um, one, two page, two and a little bit page devotions, meditations on the grace of God, meditations on how God's grace and the wonder of God's grace comes to us in the midst of our sin, how His grace cleanses us, renews us, and fills us with joy. And it's an absolutely fantastic book and wonderful thing to, to meditate on and to, to reflect on. So I commend that to you as a resource for you to be aware of, particularly if you are somebody who regularly struggles with guilt, if you're someone who regularly struggles with shame. Um, you know, David says in the psalm, for I know my sin and my sin is ever before me. And if that is, if that is you... And if you continue to deal with this black cloud of guilt and shame, I would highly encourage you to pick this book up and to use it in your own personal worship. We turn our attention now to Psalm 51. As the text, opening of the text tells us, this is the psalm that David wrote when Nathan the prophet went to him and after he had gone into Bathsheba and David's psalm of confession. And in this we see the depths and the problem of sin and the wonder of God's grace. Follow along with me as I read. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we ask that in these moments as we have gathered together for you to send your spirit to open our hearts, to be honest before you, to understand the problem of sin, but moreover, Lord, that in so doing that we would relish in the wonder of your grace that you have purchased through us, for us, through Jesus Christ. So, Father, fill this time and change our hearts, and may we not only hear of your grace, but may we experience it this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The soldier was shot. He was doing something that he wasn't supposed to be doing. His unit went out. He was told what what not to do, otherwise he would get shot, and he actually did. He got shot by the enemy. And when he got shot, it wasn't a mortal wound. At least it wasn't a mortal wound yet. But he was so embarrassed by his stupidity for doing what he should not have done that all of a sudden he realized that he was still alive and he wanted to cover it up. He wanted to hide it. He wanted to not let anyone know what had happened to him. But at the same time that he realized this, he knew, I've been shot. And that's the only way for him to deal with the wound that he had. His only hope for survival was to undress it, to rip off his jacket, to strip off his shirt, and to cover, uncover the raw, naked ugliness of the wound that was there and to turn and to say, help me. We come to Psalm 51, David's psalm of confession after committing adultery with Bathsheba, after pursuing her, if adultery, if not rape, manipulating things so that her husband Uriah is murdered, manipulating his servants to cover himself up. And we come to this psalm and we see David not hiding from his sin after Nathan confronts it, but dealing with it in a raw a naked way, looking sin straight in the eye, stripping it down. And in so doing, he experiences the wonders of God's grace. That just is the way that it is with sin. We looked at it two weeks ago when we were looking at the nature of how sin, the nature of temptation and the working of temptation and sin and dealing with that, and how we're incomparably weak, but Jesus is immeasurably stronger. We saw last week how God's grace meets us in the moments of sin, when we sin and right after we sin. And here we see how the wonders of grace overcomes the problem of sin in our life. But in order to deal with sin, this is what must happen. You cannot deal with sin until you look it in the eye. Undress it. Strip off the jacket of excuses you made to cover its ugliness. Tear away shirt, pants, everything that hides its nakedness, and then say, this is my child, I, and I alone am responsible for it. Look in your mirror too, the person staring back at you is quite capable of committing the same sin tomorrow. The person staring at you has sinned. Tell that person so. Don't pull any punches. 
say kindly but firmly that this is the sort of thing that person is all too capable of. And until he wakes up to that fact, progress in godliness is impossible. Until he wakes up to that fact, progress in godliness is impossible. Indeed, this morning we're going to look at here, first off, the problem of sin, and then the wonder of grace that meets us in our sin. Notice how David is very raw, and he strips off his jacket to expose before the Lord, honestly, unequivocally, his problem with sin. His problem with sin, as he identifies, is that it is personal, the first thing that we see here. Five times in these opening verses, David owns his own sin. Five times he says, have mercy on me, O God, blot out my transgressions. Do you know what transgressions are? Transgressions are the sins that good people commit. Transgressions are the sins that people who go to church every week of the year, this is the sins that they commit. Because a transgression is, I know the line, I know what I should do, I know the boundary of what I'm not supposed to do, and I cross it. And I cross it deliberately, and I cross it intentionally. Have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, iniquity, the sin, that the, the stain that covers us, that taints us, that pollutes us, and cleanse me from my sin, all the ways that I have missed the mark. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In our society today, all around us, through the training, through our education system, through the news, the media, there is a very strong emphasis these days that all sin is corporate, all sin is societal, and all sin is systemic. And frankly, Christians most certainly have been very weak in their understanding of systemic, societal, and corporate sin, and very weak in addressing those things, and the Word of God speaks plenty about it. But here in this passage, Psalm 51 makes it expressly clear that the only reason why you sin is you. You're the only reason that your sin is personal. You are wholly responsible. It is all your own. We really don't like to think of it that way, do we? The atheistic philosopher Frederick Nietzsche gave this observation on humankind that's very insightful. He says, when someone's committed a wrong, this is the line of reasoning that goes through their head. They see the wrong and they say, I have done that, says my memory. Yes, I remember doing that. I cannot have done that, says my pride, and remains inexorable. It remains unchangeable. Eventually, the memory yields. I have done that, says my memory. I could not have done that, says my pride. Eventually, the memory yields. Yields. I could not have done that. But David, when we come to Psalm 51, David, without equivocation, strips off the ugly jacket. He strips off his shirt. He lays it down, and he's open and honest before the Lord. He stares sin in the face, and he says, I alone, I alone am responsible for my actions. Brothers and sisters, there is no hope in dealing with sin in your life without a severe honesty. Indeed, as we saw in the quote before from John White, he says, progress in godliness is 
impossible without a severe honesty, with a, without a raw spiritual nakedness that acknowledges your, your personal responsibility for your sin, without excuse, without blaming. Some, many, their way of dealing with their sin is to just deny it and deny that it even exists. Their memory has yielded to their actions. But this may sound kind of funny, but I think many Christians, what they do is they do something else, is that they actually hide behind the guilt of their sin, and they spiritually stagnate. They hide behind the guilt of their sin. And so if there's an area in their life, something that you're struggling with, something that you're wrestling with, something that I've got going on, I say, you know what? I know it's bad. I'm aware of my guilt. I know that I've done this wrong. It's a problem. It's been a whole problem my whole life. Leave me alone. You can't speak to me about it. It's been there. It's always going to be there. Yes, I've got it. I'm not going to, yes, I've got it. Leave me alone. And so instead of confessing the sin like David, what happens is Christians become defensively, they become defensive and they stagnate in their spiritual growth because they are hiding behind it. Yes, there's a personal aspect, but instead of confessing it, they wallow in it. Or to put it slightly differently, as Peter Marshall said, we are all too Christian to really enjoy sinning, and we're all too fond of sin to really enjoy Christianity. And so the many blessings and the grace and the wonder of grace, which is greater than our sin, greater than the experience of sin, is that Christians don't, don't, real, don't embrace the fullness of that, and they don't realize the fullness of it in their life. Why? Because they're all too fond of it. They're saying, I'm dealing with it, and I don't really want to address it. But sin is personal. The problem of sin is personal, and it must be honestly, severe honestly, and with a severe honesty, rather, confessed before the Lord. The second problem with our sin is that our sin is profane. In the strict definition of the world, word, our sin is contempt for God. I believe our tendency is that we generally think that when we have sinned against somebody else, that we think that of all the people who have been offended, that God is the least offended by our sin. Yeah, I need to apologize to this person. I need to apologize for this. But the person that's going to mind the least is God himself. That's what we think is going to happen. But look how David describes his sin. He says this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying that you may be justified in your words, that no one's going to disagree with you when you rightly judge sin. But against you, and you only have I sinned. It's astounding, is it not? I mean, it is hard to think of anybody in Israel that David did not sin against. I mean, didn't David, you know, everyone else went out to war. David stayed back, decided to relax. You know, he's taking a personal vacation on company time. Wasn't it David who seduced Bathsheba and abused her? Wasn't it David who usurped Uriah's marriage rights? Wasn't it David who illegally ordered his commanding officer to conspire with him for the murder of Uriah? Wasn't it David who manipulated his servants to cover up his sins so that he could protect his image? Wasn't it David who utterly failed what he was supposed to do as a, people of, as a king over the people of God? It is hard to imagine that there is anybody in Israel who David did not sin against. Yet, when we sin, our sin is against God, against you, and you only have I sinned. I know that's still difficult to, emphasize, to understand. We've been talking about it the past couple weeks. But think of it this way. It is bad enough if you go over and kick your neighbor's dog. But woe to you if your neighbor is watching you kick 
his dog, right? Because if the neighbor sees this, the neighbor is not just concerned, wow, there has been an offense against a canine in the neighborhood. No, the neighbor's concern is, you kicked my dog. You violated me. You did this against me. Well, did he kick him? No, but he kicked his dog. And each and every person is created in the image of God, made by God, to bear God's image. And because they are image bearers, they have inherent worth and value because of who they are, of who God made them to be, because God is God over them. What this means then is that because of this truth of God being the creator over all, when you sin against another person, it is a sin principally against the Lord. What this means is that the Lord is the God of the man or the woman that you seduced. He is the God of the neighbor that you snubbed. He is the God of the customer that you shortchanged. He is the God over all of those. A wrong against another person is first and foremost a wrong against God. Our sin is profane. It is contempt for God. The third problem, third aspect of our sin that's a problem is not only is it personal, not only is it profane, but it is primal. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now what David is identifying here is he's not, uh, he's not addressing, he's not saying that, that uh, sexual relations and marriage are wrong or that there's something inherently sinful about that. What David is addressing, he's saying, there is a problem with who I am. There is a problem with my being. There is a problem with the human race that is part of who I am. And David is not blaming his past. He's not blaming his mother. He is simply confessing who he is. Today, behavioral sciences, if you've taken any of those classes, your human resources department, really attempt to give us an out on the primal nature of our sin and the problem of sin. Because all these different realms would would seek to say, that you are what you are because of your past. You're a product of your learning. You're a product of your environment. You're a product of your heredity. You're a product of your parents. And so, yeah, maybe you grew up in a home that was a broken home. Maybe you had a bad parent. Maybe you had an abusive parent. Maybe you had a manipulative parent. Take your pick. So all the things that you're dealing with in your life right now, all of those things stem from your parents. It's not really your fault is the implicit statement that is sometimes overtly said. But David acknowledges that he has a primal problem with his past. He's acknowledging that. But David is not blaming his past. He's not blaming his parents. He is confessing it. He is crying out to God saying, God, because this is who I am, I need you to be, oh God, I need you to be who you are. The problem of sin is personal. It's profane and it's primal. And this just sets the stage as David exposes the ugliness of his sin and our sin. This just sets the stage that we might experience the wonder of God's grace. Here's what David knows about the grace of God. And here's what David knows about the God of grace. He knows the wonder of God's grace is that grace is, God's grace is permanent. David begins by saying this. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. I think many of us would say that confession like this, have mercy on me, O God, because if you had to put up with what I had to put up, you would have done the same thing. But that's not what David says. David does that because he knows that God's grace is permanent, and that's what he clings to. And that's what he relies upon. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Is that David makes no claim on the mercy that he begs. He makes no claim upon it. The thing that he claims and that he clings to, that his only hope is the character of God. And the character of the God who has made covenant with him, as we've seen in preceding weeks. The character of God who has promised to him steadfast love. Hesed, as we saw, promises him steadfast love, covenant love that is unswerving, that is unending, and that is dependent upon not us, but upon God himself. And so David throws himself on the grace of God, according, have mercy on me, according to your steadfast Love, not because he deserves it, but simply because of the character of God. I think this shows a remarkable truth about how much David knows who he is and who God is. Is that because the wonder of grace is permanent, for all of the ugliness of David's sin, for all of the hideousness of the things that David had done, what is remarkable is that David still knows that he belongs. He still knows that he belongs to his heavenly Father. He still knows that in the midst of everything that he has done, that he can say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, which is according to your covenant, and in that I belong, not because I deserve it, but because you said so. And that is my hope, and that is what I rest on, and because I am in you, I am permanently bound in you and bound to your grace because of your steadfast love. Not only is the wonder of grace permanent, but where most of the psalm focuses on is how God's grace is purifying. There are multiple different images that are used in this psalm to describe the purification. And when you look at verses 7 through 10, the the text reads like as a series of requests, a series of commands. Uh, Different English translations translate these different ways because there's a, the, the Hebrew grammatical form does not completely equate to English. And so the usage is somewhere between a future, you will, you shall, and an imperative, would you, like restore to me a request, a directive. And so with that, it's the series of declaration, request declarations before the Lord. This is what David says, and look at these images. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You could put it this way. You will hide your face from my sins. You will blot out all my iniquities. You will create in me a clean heart, O God. You will renew a right spirit within me. Now consider these images a little bit further. He says, you will hide your face from me. Hide your face from my sin, which is as God is, he's saying, you will deliberately choose to not look at my sin anymore. You will blot out all my iniquities, though there is a record of my sin 
that stands against me, you, Lord, you will blot it out and make the record of my sin no more. You will create in me a clean heart, O God. The same word that was used of God in creation, of creating the heavens and earth. Something that David could not do himself, something that David could not bring about himself. You will, O God, create in me a clean heart. You will renew a right spirit within me because my spirit is prone to wander. But you will, O Lord, renew this within me. Do you hear how all-encompassing the purifying work of God's grace is and the wonder of God's grace? Let's tighten these up. God sees that God sees our sin, but he sees it no more. There is a record of our sin, but God has blotted it out. There is the corruption, the pollution, and the iniquity of sin in our heart, but God has made us new. He has purified us in all these ways. But I think the most powerful image comes from verses 7 through 8 in this passage. And the image that's used in verses 7 through 8 the, the Hebrews would have understood as a direct reference to the process that was used for the cleansing of a leper. Leprosy was a, a horrible disease. It was a skin disease. It was highly contagious. It would cause people, their skin to buckle, their skin to boil. They would have neuropathy. They'd lose feeling. And they oftentimes lost many digits because of their leprosy. And what happened is that if someone had leprosy, they were cast out of the village, namely so that nobody else would get contaminated and nobody else would contract the disease. But what happened for a leper is that when they were out of the village, if they came across someone, whenever someone came by, the leper would have to shout out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Why? So that there wasn't contact between the two so that the other person didn't get contaminated. However, every once in a while, there would be a leper who would get healed of his leprosy. And in order for his healing to be recognized, he would have to present himself to the priest. And what the priest would do is that he would take a branch of hyssop, which is just a plant, a certain flowering plant. He would take the hyssop, he would put it in a, the blood of a sacrifice, and he would sprinkle the leper with the blood from the hyssop branch. And that would take seven weeks to do. After the end of, I'm sorry, seven days to do. It would take one week to do. At the end of seven days, what would happen is that the very first thing that the leper then needed to do was he needed to take all of his clothes, clothes all of his belongings, and wash them from the contamination. And he would wash all of his stuff. And then after he was, has done all of this, he would be declared clean and would go back into the village and there would generally be a reception that this person has been restored to community. With that as the background, David is identifying himself as the leper. He is saying, I am the one who is unclean. But you, Lord, by your grace, are the ones who makes me clean. This is how David characterizes it. He says this, purge me with hyssop. Literally, descend me with hyssop. I can't descend myself. Descend me, O God. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, the next step, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness the joy and gladness that a one who is estranged from community has been restored into community. Let me hear joys and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, a broken spirit, let the bones that you have broken rejoice, or more literally, let the bones that you have broken dance. And David sees all these aspects. He's saying, listen, Lord, I am a leper who you have cleansed. You have purified, and you are the one that makes me clean. Wash me. 
and I shall be whiter than snow. It's a powerful thought, is it not? That though my sin is dirty, though my sin is and feels disgusting, though my sin is a stain that, that marks me, I may even feel that it defines me. Though there is nothing I can do to cleanse myself, but you, God, if you purge me, if you wash me, no matter how filthy, no matter how indelible, no matter how permanent, oh Lord, if you wash me, I will not just be clean, I will be radiant. I will be whiter than snow. God, I need you to cleanse me, to descend me with the blood of Jesus. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. I will be radiant. And the wonder of God's grace is that you are purified from the depths of sin. You are purified from the record of sin, from the guilt of sin, from the shame of sin, from the pollution of sin. And he washes you and makes you radiant, glistening, whiter than snow. The wonder of grace is that it is purifying. Not only that, but finally, the wonder of grace is inherently and deeply personal. When the President of the United States pardons a criminal, he does not invite him for dinner every night forever. That criminal is not included in the family dinners, the family celebrations, and the family banquets. But when David cries out to the Lord, he says, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Surely he was thinking of what happened to Saul, and he saw the torment of him. He says, Cast me not away. Other verses in the psalm, he says, Lord, uphold me with a willing spirit. Lord, create me a clean heart. You will do this. You will make this happen. You will not abandon me, and you will not forsake me. Is that God, what he does in the wonder of his grace, is not only does he purify us, but he restores to us. For no reason other than his love and grace, for no reason in ourselves, he restores us to fellowship with God. He restores us to a personal presence with the living God, restored in relationship. And it is through the word of God that that is declared that if you are in Jesus Christ, he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And the wonder of grace is that you permanently belong. You are wholly purified, and you are personally restored to the presence of God. So brothers and sisters, some of you here today are still terrified to look your sin in the eye. You are still afraid to take off the jacket, to strip off the shirt, and to say, this is mine and this is me. Some of you are afraid to do so because of how personal your sin is. And you're afraid because if you admit that your sin is personal, that you, that you are the one who did this, you're saying, if I did this, then that means that I'm responsible, and I'm responsible for what happened, and I'm responsible for this action. I can't believe that I did this, but I actually did do this. And my memory has not yielded because my conscience has continued to prick me. And you're afraid of that being revealed because of how personal your sin is. But look at the wonder of grace. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to be your substitute. And though you are responsible for your sin, and though you should be responsible for your punishment, he takes it. He he stands as your substitute so that you would be forgiven, and he takes the punishment upon you. How amazing. Some of you are 
are, are, are afraid to, to be honest about your sin and the severe honesty of it because of the profanity of your sin. That you know it's contempt for God, you're happy to talk to all kinds of other people about it, but you're like, man, if I stood before God and I acknowledged this to be God, before God, I, I, would be, I, I, I would be undone. I, 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 I would have nothing. And that's exactly where you need to be. Because in Jesus Christ, for those who acknowledge that they are undone, that their sin is profanity against God, in Christ Jesus, you are purged. You, you are purified. You are, you are washed. You are made radiant, whiter than snow. You are restored to the very presence of God himself. Do you hear the invitation to not only hear about, but to experience the wonder of God's grace? And for others of you, you're still wrestling with the whole idea and you're afraid to, to confess that, you're, that the problem of sin with you is so primal. It's so infused into your being. And, you're, and the idea that your sin is not just a problem of your doing, but a problem of your being. And you're afraid of that because your whole life you've been told that you are great and that you are awesome and that anything that's been wrong in your life is not about you and not from you. But do you hear the freedom? Because if you confess that to the Lord, Jesus makes you new. He makes you a new creation and restores, gives you a new spirit to dwell within you. And I'm afraid that many of us, people who call themselves Christians, we try to deal with our sin, people who are Christians. We try to deal with our sin like Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, who after she murders the man, her hands, her hands are covered with blood. She washes off the blood, but she can't get the blood away. Or she can't, she still sees it. So she washes her hand, and she washes her hand, and she washes her hand more and more, and it won't go away, and her sin is ever before her, day and night. And she cries out, you know, out, out, spot. I say, out. And it is still there. And she can't get away from it. But the amazing thing, and that so many of us try to deal with our sin that way, but the amazing thing about the wonder of God's grace is that all that is needed is to come before him with a severe honesty, to look sin in the eye, to rip off the jacket, to rip off the shirt, and to say before God, God, I did this. God, I am this. I need you to make me clean. And if you confess that to him, Jesus can and Jesus will. Would you turn to him today and experience the wonder of God's grace that fills you with joy? I know for some of you, you're still wrestling through this. And you might think, you know, one would think that with the depth of self-knowledge that David describes, if I ever describe myself with that much self-knowledge, it would lead me into despair. But for David, what it does in the rest of the psalm is that it enlarges his joy because he, the, the, the problem of sin that he openly confesses just serves as a platform to experience the wonder of God's grace in his life. And it enlarges his praying, and it enlarges his worship. And I hope that it does that for you today. So that instead of denial, instead of your memory yielding, instead of being in dis despair, may the profound and awesome truth that the problem of sin has been dealt with by Jesus Christ, may the truth that the problem of sin has been May the truth that the problem of sin has been dealt with by Jesus Christ fill you with wonder 
as you experience his grace. And may he do that in you today. Let's pray together. Father, we stand in awe and worship you. And, you know, I, Lord, I try again and again to come up with a reason inside me why you would show me grace. And sometimes I think I've got one. But then your word lays me flat again. And I realize that I, ha- I lay no claim on your mercy. I lay no claim on your grace. Lord, the only thing that I claim is your character and your steadfast love, which you promised to me through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for Jesus, who has purified me, who has permanently made me your own, who has not only pardoned me, but has, has given me a seat at your table as, a, as your child to dine with you and to live with you and to experience you for all eternity. Lord, we ask that the wonder of your grace would fill us with joy, Lord, that the wonder of your grace would move us by your Spirit to lift our eyes off of ourselves, to lift our eyes away from our sin, and that we would embrace and wonder at the cross of Jesus Christ and how, for no reason, but your grace and your grace alone, you forgive us and make us radiant, whiter than snow. Lord, may we experience your grace afresh today. Lord, may some here experience your grace for the first time today. By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.